Shalom. Thank you for listening to Progressively Jewish, the podcast where you can explore and connect to Judaism through a progressive lens. I'm Debbie Young-Summers, and today I'm going to be talking about faith as linked to this week's Torah portion, Beshalach, which can be found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, through to chapter 17, verse 16. And welcome to the Progressively Jewish podcast. We are really excited this week to be welcoming a trinity of cantors from around the UK. We have cantor Zoe Jacobs, cantor Tamara Wilson and cantor Sarah Grabina uh, joining us this week to talk about faith in the week of Shabbat B'Shalach, traditionally known as Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of Song. So uh, the parasha this week features the song at the sea and tells us about the faith of our ancestors in crossing through it. So we're going to start by asking our three fantastic guests about what different musical traditions do differently with the song of the sea. Who would like to kick off? That sounds like it's going to be me. Excellent. Thank (laughs) you, Zoe. (laughs) So I think the question that we might ask ourselves is what we would imagine it felt like if we had stood on the edge of the sea you know the fear of we're trying to leave behind something that's so scary but it's also what we know and we're being promised something ahead of us that is a promise of freedom a promise of change but for the world today as well as the world then change was scary so i think music treats that in lots of different ways and the gift of different composers writing different settings of the texts means that we have lots of different interpretations and it sounds like we might just be launching right into music so i'm going to pick up a guitar um and uh, give us one example i know that my colleagues have two other really wonderful examples um the thing i love about this setting it's a setting by the composer hannah tiferet siegel is that it speaks to one of the questions that I've always had about this parasha. Because the parasha is introduced with the line, Moses and Miriam and the children of Israel all sang to you with these words. And and there's sort of slightly different versions depending on whether it's Moses singing or Miriam singing. But basically the suggestion is that everybody's singing together. And so it it leaves us with the question that's um, asked in the Midrash, which is, well, how do they all know the same song is this a song they'd been practicing in anticipation of their freedom um is this something that uh, was a call and response song how, how did they sing this same song and so Hannah Ferret Siegel's setting takes the idea that perhaps it could have been call and response led by Moses um, and then responded to by the children of Israel and uh, my guess is this is a melody at this point the community knows quite well um, how I wish you could all be singing in response we'll try and figure out how to uh, make it clear that there's a response in this me
beautiful. It reminds me of all these moments that we've had in uh, reform movement conferences, and I'm sure at FRS as well, where Zoe is teaching something and uh, everyone is just following. And I think that's that might well be what happened on the banks of the Red Sea, was they had a, 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 a Zoe singing, leading everybody, or a Miriam. Um, over to Sarah. So this idea of um, how did they know the tune? Uh, had they been preparing, as uh, Zoe talked about, I think really speaks to this heart of um, the question of faith and the song of the sea. Having faith that they would someday be free, uh, even when they were still in Egypt, not knowing whether redemption would come, but something inside of them knew that it could be possible. Um, and so uh, to bring in a different example, a melody which is sung all together in different parts, um, I'm gonna share a little bit of Ilana Arian's melody, uh, now, when uh, I first heard her teaching this, she talked about um, the idea of this kind of ragtag band of Israelites leaving Egypt, um, that often we think about the Song of the Sea as a, a big celebratory song. Uh, we're going to think about the mood of it more. Um, but actually, it was really the song of the journey. Uh, my friend Rabbi Matt Green highlighted to me that the song is not sung once they're on the other side. It's sung right in the middle. Um, both before and after the Shirah, we get this line in the Torah that uh, the children of Israel were hayam, in the midst of the sea. Um, and those exact words occur both before and after the actual song. It's um, framed, bracketed by the water. They're not yet through to the other side. It's still a tough journey. Uh, this kind of uh, old, young, stragglers, those struggling to get through, all trying to make their way to dry land. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Tamara, what's your tune? So it's not my tune, um, but I learned it from Dan Nichols. Um, Dan Nichols has two settings of Micha Mocha, and the one that he wrote for um, the Shacharit for the morning liturgy, uh, to me, speaks to a little bit of what Sarah was talking about, that we often focus on the sort of celebratory tone of, of the moment of Micha Mocha, but when we're at this moment of either being about to wade into the sea or even just before we step foot into it, um, what this setting that Dan Nichols wrote really picks up on is the fear. Um, and there's always a little bit of fear and a little bit of doubt that go along with our, our journeys of faith. It's not always straightforward. It's not always easy. Uh, and similarly, this moment of micha mocha, of finding our way to freedom, was tinged by doubt and tinged by fear, um, and also importantly tinged by the sadness of the people that were left behind, the people that were swallowed by the sea. Uh, and so I'm just going to share a little bit 
of Dan Nichols' setting of Mi Mocha for the morning for Shacharit. Mi Mocha I've not heard that one before. What a treat. Thank you. Um, so all of you have sung Micha Mocha, which is obviously a part of Shirata Yam that we hear quite regularly in our liturgy. Um, how is the Shira sung in other contexts? I, I know it has a special um, Spanish and Portuguese tune. And are there, is the learning different in other traditions or is it just the Spanish and Portuguese? Sarah, do you want to say something about that? So there are um, a multitude of different traditions for how to actually chant this bit of the Torah when we reach it in our Torah service, right? As uh, you noted, Debbie, we all picked up on just perhaps the most famous line, Micha Mocha, and uh, more contemporary compositions, uh, musicians, songwriters, uh, cantors who've come to the text and uh, chosen to pick out a line. Um, there's, of course, uh, another very famous line in the Shira, Oziva Zimrat Ya Vayhili Lishua, um, which many of us sing to the melody by uh, Rabbi Sheffer Gold. And these are all uh, verses picked out of the whole 18 verse Shira uh, in Exodus chapter 15. So uh, when we come in the Torah service to that uh, part of the reading, um, different communities do different things. You mentioned the Spanish and Portuguese tradition um, of uh, a particular tune. Da, 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 da. Often people know it um, by the name Bendigamos, which is a Ladino setting for Birkat Hamazon, Grace After Meals, um, that it was subsequently used for, but actually, um, initially, it does come from this bit of Torah um, and was a melody derived uh, for this part of the reading. In other traditions, uh, so so sorry, in the Spanish and Portuguese tradition, the whole 18 verses might be sung to that melody, um, unlike the rest of Torah where we lane it in a chanted style, not necessarily in a metrical rhythm. Uh, this part would stand out for that reason. In other communities, uh, and something which I know me and my fellow cantors here sometimes do, uh, is follow a tradition where specific verses are picked out of the shira, six or seven verses or fragments of verses uh, that mention God. Uh, now it's a little bit of a fuzzy tradition because sometimes you can find verses that might mention God that aren't included in the set but as with all musical traditions uh, there's some room for creativity uh, and so what we might do is uh, chant uh, in the regular Torah trope that we'd be used to using uh, 
for the rest of the year. And then when it comes to these verses, uh, transition to a particular tune. Uh, and that tune goes, so if I give you a tiny example, this would be the very beginning of Exodus chapter 15, starting in our regular Torah laning cantillation. Then we switch into this tune. Just a hint of what you might hear in Shul on Shabbat Bashach. That is gorgeous. My bat mitzvah is actually Shabbat Bashalach, but I had to do the bit after, which was uh, the manna. Um, so I never learned the shira, but it is uh, the haftarah the of Deborah, which was always very appropriate. Um, so you talked up there about verses that reference God. And um, obviously music is such an important, powerful part of how we relate to prayer and therefore sort of part of our relationship to God. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel music impacts our faith? Our theme for this week uh, at Progressively Jewish is faith. And, um, you know, there's the faith that must have been needed to walk into the sea, but actually music can really impact how we engage with, with our faith. Has that been a, a truth for you? Should we start with Tamara? Yeah, um, so I think that part of the reason I became a cantor uh, is specifically because music was the earliest language through which I understood my faith and my relationship to a higher power. Um, a bit of a personal story, I'll shorten a very long story, but I was born prematurely. And my great grandmother, who is a classical pianist, um, brought a cassette tape of music into the neonatal intensive care unit where I spent the first three months of my life. And inexplicably, I started getting better from the moment she reintroduced the music into my um, healing, so to speak. So I've grown up with this narrative that music had a really kind of healing, powerful property to it. Um, and it wasn't until I started singing and started studying classical piano that I started connecting the composer's intentions with the emotions that the certain notes and the dynamics brought with them. Um, and then when I connected music and emotion with liturgy, um, to me, that was just the fullest way that I could understand how to express my faith. Uh, it was a real moment of connecting the dots that sometimes if I couldn't articulate my faith or if the words in the book sometimes couldn't articulate my faith, um, that the music behind the words could do that for me. Um, and my favorite uh, example of this is Kol Nidre which is one of the driest, most legalistic texts you'll find in our tradition. But the music of Kol Nidre is what makes it such a powerful, poignant moment for us um, and connects us back with that sense of Yom Kippur, that sense of the faith that we particularly feel or maybe don't feel on that holiday. Um, so I won't take up too much more time, but I think that's kind of my faith music moment in a nutshell. 
you gave me goosebumps then tomorrow my I'd completely forgotten about it actually my uh my youngest was born not three months premature but five weeks premature and his name is Micha so we used to sing Micha Mocha to him um as kind of his little theme tune um which you've all just sung that's gorgeous um Zoe did you want to say something about that not about Micha obviously <laughs> um I, I also loved Tamara's story and actually Tamara you reminded me um, I'm going to paraphrase I don't remember exactly what he said but Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who often writes so beautifully about liturgy and music um, speaks a little bit about uh, the role of faith and music I think he talks about um, that we only have two things we have the words of liturgy and we have uh, I think he says reverence in our hearts and that the job of music is to bring together those two things and I think it, it really speaks to what you're saying about um, the way I would describe it, at least, is that if someone asked me to describe my faith in a kind of cerebral way, I don't know how intelligently I could articulate it. But if I was asked to communicate how I feel about text in song, suddenly it's so much easier for me. I might need a different melody for a different time, but certainly my faith is supported in some way by music it allows me to access something that I can't necessarily put into words but that's so deeply emotional that it really helps me to feel kind of grounded um, and to know who I am and, and where I belong and for me that's so much um, what faith is in my life. What Zoe just said um, reminds me so much of um, two other significant Jewish leaders uh, Moses in our Torah portion, who I think we can all uh, think of like being like Cantor Zoe Jacobs leading us in song. Um, and what Rashi, uh, the great uh, medieval Provencal sage, has to say about Moses in this Torah portion. Um, because uh, when Rashi looks at the uh, very first verse of Exodus chapter 15, he looks at the verb yashir, Moses will sing. And he asks questions about this. Lots of people ask questions about it. But um, Rashi gives two different explanations uh, which really encapsulate what Zoe just said about how music, how singing can do sometimes so much more than thinking or uh, can add and enrich so much. And Rashi says that, um, uh, why is this verb in the future tense and the imperfect, all the deep grammatical stuff? Uh, but then the answer he gives is that when Moses saw the miracle, he he had to sing that that music was a response to something um phenomenal miraculous divine uh, the basis of faith perhaps and then the second example um which uh, the abraham joshua heschel quote seems like so perfect for this is that rashi says that uh, moses heart told him to sing um and that's uh, why we get this verb yashir in its particular grammatical form um so maybe we need to start uh, referring to Zoe is Zoses, as I think Tamara suggests. Our <laughs> uh, 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 Moses of the British Jewish community. Uh, let's see if it catches on. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, I love this idea of the, the, the singing of our hearts. I think that's such a beautiful phrase. Um, and actually, I'm going to embarrass her slightly, but I think um, that sense of what music could mean in our worship massively shifted about nearly 12 years ago um, when Zoe was ordained as a cantor and, and returned home as it were. Um, and um, I just, I was wondering if, and we'll start with Zoe here, if you could reflect a little bit on um, what 
those shifts over the last 12 years have looked like from your perspective? I think as someone who has just enjoyed hearing the music and, and seeing what our communities can kind of come together and do at conferences and things has been gorgeous. But from your perspective, how has the presence of not just yourself now, but a growing team of ordained cantors meant to British jury? Well, um, it, it's hard for me to say what it's meant for British Jewry, but I can um, share what I've noticed and, and how I feel about it. Um, I think I'm incredibly lucky that about 11, 12 years ago, the new reform movement, Sidor, had just come out. And what one of the things that had happened is that we'd put back in a whole load of the texts that had been taken out with the previous Sidor. And, and we're still calling it the new Sidor, right? Everyone oh, else yeah. is doing that, yeah? Good. Yeah, I think it'll be the new Sidor until we start working on another Sidor, at which point it will become the old Sidor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but our Sidor um, at the time suddenly had given us all of these texts that we didn't really necessarily know, well, how come these are now in here and they weren't before. There was suddenly a kind of an, an interest in tradition, which I'm sure for some people had always been there, but suddenly on a wider scale was there. And the other thing that happened alongside that was a kind of yearning for the traditional sounds that I think some of our communities had lost. So I was lucky. I think my timing just, I, really, I, I feel very fortunate that they coincided. And if you ask me then what the changes are, I think there is an openness in the community now that um, has taken some time to develop. Um, just to give you a, a quick side story, when I was in cantorial school, I took a class with an extraordinary choreographer whose name was Liz Lerman, is Liz Lerman. Um, she's an unbelievable teacher, but she was teaching a class to a bunch of uh, future rabbis and cantors. Um, it wasn't exactly called Jews try to dance, but it was it was something like the choreography of prayer or something along those lines. Um, it was an unbelievable class. And um, one of the things that I took away from it that was probably the biggest gift for the start of my cantorate was uh, an expression that she said to us at the beginning of the class. She basically said there are two rules. One is that I ask you to maintain a pleasant countenance, regardless of how you're feeling. And the other is to ask yourself if something makes you uncomfortable to turn your discomfort into inquiry. And I think the start of my cantorate, I might have used those two expressions more perhaps than almost anything else, because I knew that every time I introduced a new piece of music or I um, explained something about chazanut or nusach that was new to the community, that I was taking away something for people who had a tradition um, that wasn't perhaps as old as they may have thought it was, but it was still their tradition. And so I think what has changed for me is I no longer feel like I have to introduce everything by reminding people to turn their discomfort into inquiry. Um, but there's an openness now to wanting to learn, to wanting to know lots of different melodies, to thinking about how those melodies can act as midrash on the text. Um, and then of course, I now have the gift of colleagues, which is an unbelievable gift, even when they give me ridiculous names that will definitely not stick. So to your wonderful colleagues, do you feel like your, I, so I suppose it's impossible to know otherwise, but was, was, was the path made easier by Zoe having come ahead or is it, does it not work like that because every community makes its own musical journey and, and Zoe's work has largely been, although some in the movement, but largely been with FRS? 
I guess I would say it's uh, both and <laughs> all the more so. Um, uh, for me, growing up in the British Jewish community, uh, music was central to my Jewish life. It's not that uh, music wasn't central, but uh, meeting Zoe when I was uh, 18 and uh, she had just gotten ordained and moved back to the UK uh, meant that I understood that there was this potential, this possibility of how much more that could mean. Um, just similarly to how Tamara spoke previously, music was always central to my Jewish life, my religious identity, but I didn't realize how much more there was out there. Um, I sometimes think about how, um, as a teenager, I learned what the Talmud was, and it was like, wow, there's all this depth and background and uh, intense historical discovery behind the Judaism that I practice. And learning about the breadth and depth of the Jewish musical heritage uh, of Nusach, of cantillation, of composers throughout the ages, felt like learning that same um, system of roots deep underneath my Jewish musical life um, when I understood what the opportunity to enter the cantorial world could mean. Um, I think what you said about different communities is really true, Zevi. Um, each of us... Uh, serves a different community, uh, even when we get to come together and do wonderful opportunities. Uh, every community has its unique musical identity, Jewish identity, and um, there are always different challenges to address um, and different journeys for each community as they uh, enter the cantorial world with us. So Tamara, correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression would be that you grew up with a much stronger presence of ordained cantors in uh, the American sort of musical Jewish scene um, than we would have had. But uh, tell us a little bit about that journey for you. Yeah, I, um, I grew up Missouri um, in the States. I would call it conservative, but I'm translating here. Um, and my cantor at my shul was, um, Cantor Jack Mendelssohn, who um, taught all three of us at Hebrew Union College um, and is just a giant of the um, cantorial world. He specializes in Nusach and Chazanut, so he comes from a more sort of Borough Park, Brooklyn traditional background, but is very egalitarian. So I think there are about three or four cantors that have come through my home shul, been very mentored by him. Um, and then followed his example to become cantors, which is a pretty cool track record. Um, but I never took cantors for granted. Um, and I think I really fell into the trap of thinking that North American uh, Judaism was sort of it. We don't often think in the States that there is Judaism happening outside of the United States and Israel. And when I happened to meet a British rabbinical student in the summer of 2016, uh, who introduced me to the vast vibrant world of British Jewry, um, I will say with humility, it kind of blew my mind. Not because I, I didn't think that there was legitimately sort of Judaism happening in other places, but because we're a bit ethnocentric in our American Judaism. And I think it's really easy to fall into that trap. So for me, one of the most exciting things about being a cantor here, um, is that I think we're working on kind of building reciprocal bridges across the pond from the US cantorate to the UK cantorate and saying to our cantorial colleagues in the US, um, look what's going on over here. Look how great this is. Um, not just that there are three cantors over here, but that there is um, a really vibrant British Jewish music scene here um, that we don't necessarily need to keep importing um, from the US and importing from Israel. Um, and that we have 
young people that are uh, growing up here in this country who want to be canters, uh, which is also uh, incredible. So I feel very lucky uh, to have joined this team. Thank you, Tamara. And thank you to all three of you for really blazing a path that has been unknown, um, but has already contributed so much to our spiritual lives and our, our kind of changing Jewish engagement in the UK. Um, we are really grateful to all of you for giving up uh, time to record with us today. I know all clergy are struggling with the burdens of living through a pandemic. So we're endlessly grateful to you for giving up your time. Um, we have been joined today by Cantor Sarah Grabina of Radlett Reform Synagogue, Cantor Zoe Jacobs of Fincher Reform Synagogue, and Cantor Tamara Wolfson of Aleph Synagogue. And it's been so wonderful to have you all with us. Thank you, thank you. And uh, Shabbat Shalom for Shabbat Shira. Thank you to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism and Leo Beck College for supporting Progressively Jewish. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Progressively Jewish podcast. That way you will never miss an episode. Please also leave us a positive comment or review with your podcast provider. We'd love you to be involved in shaping the future of this podcast. Share your ideas with us on the Progressively Jewish Facebook page or by emailing us at progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Please recommend us to your friends and fellow congregants, those who are Jewish and people of all faiths and none. Next week's episode will be hosted by my friend and colleague, Rabbi Richard Jacobi, who will be exploring the Jewish task with Parashat Yitro.